Welcome to the Daily Journal podcast for October 8th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. This is another special edition of our show, the second installment of our Supreme Court October term 2019 preview series. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to yesterday's podcast dealing with immigration and border issues. Today's show will look at three prominent cases on the high court's docket relating to securities and business and financial matters. Two of the cases we'll speak about today deal with security suits in the context of retirement savings plans. Both center around the federal ERISA statute, short for Employee Retirement Income Security Act. The 1974 law put in place certain regulations and standards governing how private companies have to manage investments that are slated to eventually pay out retirement benefits to employees. In one of the cases we'll discuss, the court will decide whether employee participants in a pension plan can sue over investment losses to the pension fund where where the plaintiffs haven't actually suffered any monetary harm and where their retirement payouts still are lined up to occur without any problem. The other case looks at whether a company that discloses 401k plan information to an employee can assume that employee had sufficient knowledge of the plan's investment strategy such that ERISA's statute of limitations should begin to run. In both cases, the defendant companies, U.S. Bank in the first, Intel in the second, argue that favorable findings for the plaintiffs could invite innumerable ERISA lawsuits, including many class actions that would unfairly tie up company resources in litigation. About these two appeals, which are Thole vs. U.S. Bank and Intel vs. Sulema, we'll speak with Gibson Dunn and Kreutzer partner Blaine Evanson, who focuses on complex commercial litigation and works in the firm's appellate and class action practice groups. First, though, we'll speak about another case bearing on the financial operation of major businesses, specifically in the context where private enterprise interacts with public governmental programs. That case is Moda Health Plan versus the United States, and is yet one more appeal relating to the Obama-era Affordable Care Act that's found its way up before the high court. Unlike previous such cases, though, the group of healthcare insurer plaintiffs here are not challenging the legality of the ACA itself. Rather, they're challenging Congress's 2014 decision to, in fairly passing language in an appropriations rider, defund a part of the act that insurers had relied upon when setting up healthcare exchange markets. The rider at issue defunded what was called the risk corridors program under which the government had, pursuant to ACA provisions, pledged to cover certain losses insurers suffered due to the novel challenge of setting up healthcare exchanges designed for large numbers of previously uninsured people. The healthcare plaintiffs in this action and a number of supporting amici like the Chamber of Commerce, economists, groups, 18 states, and the District of Columbia, and other insurers, including one amicus supported by our next guest, all argue that Revoking the ACA's cost-sharing program with an appropriations rider amounted to a massive bait-and-switch, one costing insurers billions of dollars as they factored in government payments into their business models. Those parties argue, moreover, that this case has a broader impact because governments, when led by either political party, tend to use financial incentives like tax credits and subsidies in order to encourage private sector behavior that advances policy goals. At the reneging on the ACA obligation here, those parties say, will discourage future private company cooperation in those sorts of contexts. For its part, the government argues that the ACA provision at issue was temporary and, moreover, that Congress has the power to suspend or repeal obligations it previously created. In this appeal, the federal circuit held for the government along those lines in an en banc vote failed, though with some fairly stinging dissents, which said the government had reneged on promises to those private companies and handled the matter with a lack of integrity and fairness and, and good faith. Friscus on the show was part of an amicus urging the federal court to reconsider the matter. He's Adam Wolfson, a partner at Quinn Emanuel Unercart here in Los Angeles. He'll join me in just a moment, but first, one quick reminder that 
Listeners of the podcast are encouraged to claim one hour of participatory CLE credit from our website after tuning in to the show. Very simple to do. Just go to www.dailyjournal.com. Find this podcast episode in our podcast library, and there should be an appended true-false test, which once you've taken and tendered the just about nominal fee, entitles you to one hour of participatory CLE credit. Finding that test is hugely appreciated because it helps us continue to provide these podcasts outside of our usual paywall. Okay, Adam Wilson is a partner with Quinn Emanuel and Urquhart here in Los Angeles. He's filed amicus briefs at the circuit and Supreme Court level in this appeal, arguing that the government improperly reneged on an Affordable Care Act cost-sharing program. He joins me now. Adam, thanks for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks. In in your filing and, and in sort of all the filings here brought in support of some of the health insurer groups here, in the case, the the argument is sort of overall that if the government is able to too easily kind of back out of statutorily created financial obligations, then uh, sort of private-public partnerships where the government tries to encourage certain behavior could be put in jeopardy. There's a section here in the Affordable Care Act, 1342, where something along the lines of that public-private type partnership is created. Tell me a bit about Section 1342 and uh, why its provisions are important. Uh, sure. Uh, so Section 1342 of the Affordable Care Act uh, created something called the Risk Corridors Program. And it, it was actually part of three different uh, risk mitigation programs that the Affordable Care Act created in order to uh, incentivize private insurers to, enjo- uh, to join uh, the new health exchanges that were created by the act. And the reason for that is because, uh, you know, as we know from uh, the act itself and Supreme Court jurisprudence on it, uh, one of the key mandates was this this whole idea that you you know that individuals have to get health insurance that even if they didn't have health insurance before. So you have this new, completely untested demographic of insurance that uh, health insurers really didn't know how to price for, didn't know what sort of costs they were going to impose on them. So it, it was very, very inherently risky. Um, the risk corridors program specifically created this situation where, if health insurers made more than a certain amount, they had to pay a portion of those profits um, back to the government. And if they lost more than a certain amount, then the government stated in the, in the act that they shall pay uh, those health insurers a, a certain portion of their outsized losses. And really what the purpose of it was is to create a corridor where um, you have health insurers that they're not going to be too successful or too unsuccessful so that they could survive for the first couple of years of the uh, of the new health exchanges and therefore understand and learn what this market was going to be like so that they could price health insurance better. And this was based on a program that was part of the Medicare Part D uh, revisions in the early 2000s, which was uh, which came about during the George W. Bush administration. And uh, the idea is that by cabining in risk this way, uh, it, it helps incentivize insurers to come in because they know that, well, at least for the first couple of years, uh, competition will be uh, sort of narrowed so that no one is going to be unduly benefited or unduly hurt by this untested market. And it, it actually enjoyed pretty widespread uh, popularity among the health insurance industry. Uh, because it, it really helped mitigate risk uh, substantially on all sides. So then uh, fast forward a few years to 2015, mm-hmm. uh, Congress passes a, a sort of overall appropriations and, and pended to that as, as a rider 
that uh, mm-hmm. would seem to cut off, I guess, the, the funding that would go towards the, the insurance plans or participating in this? I guess tell me a bit more about what that, that rider provided for. Yeah, sure. So what happened is uh, 2014, January 1st, 2014, the health exchanges open up. And at that point, uh, the insurers had already uh, decided whether or not to offer coverage in the health exchanges. Their, their premiums had to be approved in 2013. And all, all the pricing that they set uh, to move forward throughout the year had already been set. And then towards the end of 2014, uh, you had, uh, I mean, in the meantime, between the Affordable Care Act's passage and this point uh, in the story, you had a change of control in Congress. Uh, you, you had a different party in control and, and you had different priorities. And uh, the new majority in Congress and Senate passed the appropriation rider that said any money that is appropriated for the department Health and Human Services, which uh, under the Act would be the ones that uh, that paid risk order amounts out. Uh, any money that we appropriate to HHS cannot be used uh, to pay the risk corridors program. So what this did is it effectively made it so that uh, only the money coming in from the program, so from the, the unduly successful insurers, uh, could be used to pay out uh, to the, let's call them the unsuccessful ones. Um, but another wrinkle to this entire story is that in late 2013, uh, before uh, the, the insurers uh, started providing coverage, uh, the Obama administration made a, a change to uh, whether or not insurers had to uh, give up their old pre-existing plans in favor of new plans. Um, people who already had health insurance were generally pretty happy with it, so they decided not to get, uh, or at least a, a higher percentage of them than expected, decided not to get these new plans, which made the demographics much, much worse uh, for the insurers. Uh, what that meant, uh, practically speaking, is that losses in the first year were much higher than originally anticipated. Kind of created a perfect storm, because then you had the vast majority of insurers offering uh, ACA plans uh, losing money, losing much more money than expected. And then you have this appropriations writer at the end of the year saying, well, we, uh, Congress or, you know, the federal government are not going to pay out the amounts that the, uh, that the act says we shall pay. Uh, so at that point, a number of uh, insurers uh, actually went out of business. Um, the, the losses were in the billions of dollars across the, the industry. And uh, you had a, uh, a majority in Congress saying we, we will not pay any more uh, for these amounts. And uh, that kind of created the situation where lawsuits were then filed in, in 2015. Uh, Quinn Emanuel, we actually filed the, the first um, lawsuit on risk corridors in the nation uh, on behalf of a, uh, an Oregon co-op named Health Republic. It was filed as a class action. And then soon after that, you had other insurers um, filing uh, their own cases. Uh, you, you had, uh, particularly relevant for this conversation, a, an Oregon insurer named Moda Health Plan uh, file its own case. And that was for, uh, at that point, I think it was tens of millions of dollars. And then as time went on, uh, the program continued, I think it became uh, nine figures, uh, a, hundred, a couple hundred million dollars, if memory serves correctly. Okay. Um, so, these insurers, obviously not uh, getting satisfaction from, from Congress, 
the third branch mm-hmm. brought in here and and uh, the case gets up to an en banc federal circuit panel holds against the insurers. Uh, tell me, I guess, a bit about how that court came down. It sounds like essentially um, the court said, well, this uh, Section 1342 did create a financial obligation, but then you know Congress, the same body that mm-hmm. created the obligation, went ahead and, and uncreated it, and so uh, the insurers are out of out of luck. Is that roughly the holding? Yeah, yeah, that, that's basically it. Um, there is an act called the Tucker Act, which allows uh, private parties to sue for money damages from the from the federal government if they go unpaid. And in a situation like this, where there's um, what's known as a, a money mandating statute. Uh, that can give rise to such claim. And you can also file a claim for uh, breach of contract, whether express or implied. Uh, and you file all of that in the Court of Federal Claims. The Federal Circuit then oversees the Court of Federal Claims. So that's why it went up on appeal to the Federal Circuit. The, both the majority and the minority in the Federal Circuit, uh, original opinion, they said um, this statute, it, it says, quote, shall pay uh, certain amounts. So therefore, it is unequivocally uh, a money mandating statute. Um, however, where the majority and, and the, the dissent uh, opinion differed is in whether these appropriations riders uh, obviated the obligation to pay. And there's a long history of, uh, of case law from the Supreme Court and from the, the Federal Circuit and its predecessor, Court of Appeals, saying, look, the, these sort of implied repeals are heavily disfavored. Uh, and therefore, uh, you have to have uh, the standard is a, a clear and unambiguous uh, indication in any appropriations rider uh, or appropriations bill or, or whatever, um, uh, you know, later on acts. That's not an express repeal. Uh, you, you need this clear and unambiguous statement um, that the amounts will not be paid again. Uh, and the majority said, well, in, in each of these years of the risk quarters program, when there were the appropriations riders, this was the uh, appropriations riders in 2014, 2015, 2016. By saying, well, none of the money that we appropriate to this fund that we use for HHS can be used to pay risk corridors, that impliedly repealed, uh, or I believe the majority said temporarily suspended the obligation to pay in each of those years. Um, and the, the rationale then, or the reasoning was that by temporarily suspending the obligation to pay in each of the three years of the risk corridors program, there's no obligation now to pay uh, the, the amounts that the, the plaintiffs are seeking. So the majority found, well, there, there's no money owed. Um, therefore, you know, sorry, plaintiffs, uh, you have to go away, even though the original statute was um, was unambiguously money mandating. The, the dissenting opinion said, no, no, this, that's not how this works. You need a clear and unambiguous statement. And by just saying you can't have access to these funds that we appropriated to this specific account. That is not a clear and unambiguous statement. And uh, the the Supreme Court precedent on which the dissent relied for that is uh, actually an 1800s case, uh, and, and then several others that happened over the, the, the ensuing decades, saying that a failure to appropriate money for an obligation is not enough alone uh, to obviate the obligation to pay, and. You know, it, it's it's old law. <laughs> uh, 1886, I think, was the was the seminal uh, Supreme Court decision on this on this issue. Um, but uh, it was in this particular case, the majority thought that there was enough in the legislative history of the first appropriations rider 
to indicate that the the um, obligation to pay had been obviated. I, I take it the the insurers, the petitioners, then here to the Supreme Court are are largely pulling their arguments sort of from the the minority opinion there. Can you tell me, I guess, some of the the core arguments being uh, being pressed by the petitioners and and, and yourself as a an amicus representing the insurer that you are. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the the petitioner um, really does follow the dissent's you know opinion in that, as well as uh, when the federal circuit denied on bank review that there was a dissent from the denial, not only from the original dissenting judge but also from an additional judge, basically saying, "Look, this, this makes no sense. You, clear and unambiguous means just that. You, you have to have a clear and unambiguous statement. You, just saying we're you you can't use the money we are appropriating for this fund." To pay risk corridors doesn't mean that you're saying you can't use money from any source or ever, uh, and we will never ever pay uh, risk corridors. But you know, a, a big part of this also is that the the, the majority's opinion had a largely retroactive effect. Insurers had already offered plans, had already priced their premium, were already offering money on health insurance on the market, but then these these appropriations riders would come out at the end of each year saying, oh, well, we're not going to pay the amounts that we owe under risk corridors. So a big theme in the petitioners' uh, papers, there, there's a couple petitioners, by the way, there, three cases have been beaded or you know, consolidated on Supreme Court appeal. But they, they basically said, look, this was a bait and switch. You, you incentivized us to come into the market, and then only after the fact, you say, well, you're not going to pay us. That's not how uh, any of this works. And when you look at a lot of the, the previous case law on that, it, it was only forward-looking payments where the, the government said, well, we're not going to pay this going forward that were upheld as obviating the obligation to pay. And then, uh, you know, going with the with the defense argument, uh, these implied repeals are actually highly disfavored and they need to, to meet this clear and unambiguous standard, which is something that um, the petitioner and a couple of the Miki pointed out. It just doesn't it's not supported here uh, by the legislative history. You also have numerous arguments saying that if you look at the legislative history, it actually is far from clear uh, that the majority is correct because you have one or two statements from uh, one or, you know, uh, like one member of Congress saying, oh, well, we're trying to make this so that only payments in are used to make payments out. But then you have uh, attempts by Congress and the Senate to pass bills explicitly saying that and that both before and after the appropriations riders where the bills failed to pass Congress. So if, if we want to look at legislative history, the, the petitioners point out and some of the amici point out, um, it, it actually suggests that the opposite is the case, that you, you don't have the ability in Congress to pass a law like this. The only sort of compromise they were able to, to come up with was to, was to put off payment for a portion of, you know, the, the appropriations bill, but under the, under the Tucker Act, under you know the substantial amount of law, that doesn't obviate an obligation to pay. And then one of the points that uh, we, we filed an amicus brief, uh, both at the federal circuit and at the Supreme Court level, uh, on behalf of a number of economists, um, this was a point that was, was echoed by some of the other amici as well, is that by acting in this way, the government is actually uh, shooting itself in the foot because a huge part of enacting government uh, you know, policies, whether but on both sides, of the, the spectrum, by the way. This is a nonpartisan issue. One of the ways that government gets uh, private parties to act is by trying to incentivize them to either partner with the government 
or act in the way that the government uh, finds desirable. So in this instance, it was to offer health insurance, but you also have things like farm subsidies, trying to encourage certain types of pro- uh, you know, um, uh, agricultural products being grown. You've got uh, incentivizing soldiers to join the military uh, by offering certain types of incentives. Uh, I, I mean, you can go up and down uh, the platforms of both parties and see that there are ways that they want to incentivize private action through uh, basically promises to pay. So if government can, after the fact, uh, and through appropriations riders so easily do away with this promise to pay, the government is either making it so that they won't be able to incentivize private parties to act in the future, or they're going to make it much more expensive for themselves. Because if it's risky to partner up with someone in private practice, we see this, you charge a much higher rate to contract or act uh, with that person because or that entity uh, simply because uh, your, your risk factor is so much higher. So a lot of what uh, the briefing at Supreme Court notes is that public-private uh, partnerships will actually be severely damaged if this case is let, uh, let stand. That notwithstanding, the government's putting forward some arguments, of course, here too as the defendant and and. What are the, the core arguments that, that the government's putting for? Is it seems essentially like as um, the, the majority opinion at the federal circuit suggested that the appropriations rider was a sufficient method of repealing this financial obligation, I guess. Is that sort of the main argument? Yeah, the, the government essentially says, look, we, we have the, the right to uh, promise to pay and we also have the right to turn off um, the, the obligation to pay. And if we take the, the proper steps and, and we provide a clear and unambiguous statement that we will not pay, that, that is what it is. Uh, that, that is uh, the government's right. Here, it, the government doesn't, has never really responded to the, the point of the, the retroactive, you know, the, the sort of bait and switch. Um, but at, at the time that we're speaking right now, um, we have not yet seen their opposition papers. So it, it may be that they have some sort of response to that. But in general, they, they say, well, look, uh, this is uh, you have to you have to have an appropriation. This is something where if in the context of the ACA, um, there, there needed to be an appropriations for the risk corridors program uh, and we did not provide it. Uh, so therefore, uh, the only payments that could be used to pay out uh, the, the amounts for the, the quote unquote unsuccessful insurers in those first four years can only be the payments that came in. This is something in, in government parlance, is, it's known as a budget neutral program. And there, there are plenty of examples of budget neutral programs where uh, payments in from the program are, are used uh, to pay out. So the government says, uh, well, it, it was clear um, that this was supposed to be a budget neutral program. That argument was rejected by both the majority and the dissent, but it is one of the government's arguments. The, you know, there is, there's discussions about uh, essentially that this is, it's confusing obligations of the government, you know, essentially misplaced reliance, um, by the parties, um, that, you know, they're, they're even, <laughs> even though the, the, it's stated, um, that the government shall pay, it needed to be understood within the broader context of the ACA and, uh, this particular program. And, you know, the government's arguments have, they, they've it's thrown up a, a number of different arguments, but the biggest one really comes back down to this implied repeal um, based on the, the, you know, the statement that, well, this is we now Congress 
uh, think this is supposed to be a budget neutral program that they that came in October 2014. That that really has it, it's coalesced around that as the primary argument um, because there there's been pretty wide scale uh, rejection of the argument that this was not a money mandating statute. Um, you know that this was a, a statute that said the government shall pay a certain amount, meaning the government shall pay that amount. It sort of sounds overall like a, the, a, a buyer beware type rationale to, you know, warning mm-hmm. parties like the insurers that, okay, if you're going to premise your business model factoring in a government program, well, to keep in mind, government programs can come and go, which, you know, there's some logic to that. Um, but so is the counter just that, well, if, if the government program is rescinded, um, it has to just be done with sort of more clarity and uh, more deliberate substance. Yeah, that, I think that's right. And uh, that's, you know, it, it comes down at a certain point to just a, a difference of opinion of the situation. And, uh, you know, with, with buyer beware, that is one of the points that, you know, that, that all of the, the private parties uh, filing briefs have made clear is that, well, if, if you, Supreme Court, uphold this, this buyer beware in a situation where you have a statute that says the government shall pay certain amounts, uh, well, okay, fair enough. Uh, well, maybe not fair enough, but the what you may be creating is a situation where buyers do have to beware and therefore price incredibly high to do any sort of business with the government. Yeah, maybe just one last one. You know, it, it strikes me that the Supreme Court, and uh, maybe particular with its current chief justice, uh, kind of likes to have folks view government parties as responsible uh, actors, and there is a piece of this case that seems like it's you know a bit unfair. Do you think, to any extent, um, the court would be inclined to maybe lean towards the direction of pushing the government to, to cover the bills it sort of said it was going to? Do you have any, I guess, overall thoughts on how the court might come down on this one? Acknowledging, of course, you're you know uh, a bit of a partisan in this one. Uh, yeah, well, obviously, I'm a little biased. Uh, you know, we, we we think the plaintiffs are, are correct in this one, but. When I, I look through this and I think about it and, you know, just game theorying it all out, um, I, I think you have an interesting, an interesting situation where even if the, some of the justices do not support the idea of the Affordable Care Act itself, the issues are broad enough and important enough and, and frankly nonpartisan enough, um, that you could have strong, uh, support for a finding for the plaintiffs, therefore, you know, reversing the federal circuit, uh, because it, it, it satisfies goals that some of the justices have in other realms. And specifically, I'm thinking of justices like um, Justice Gorsuch or, or Justice uh, Kavanaugh, who have, have a much more skeptical view on legislative history arguments when in, interpreting statutes uh, and would potentially, at least, be more willing to look at uh, this as a situation like, look, I, I don't agree with the policy goals of this specific act of Congress, but uh, the way that the government is trying to get out of its obligation is actually damaging to, um, you know, to, to how I would prefer that the Supreme Court interpret statutes in the future and damaging to the government's ability to actually uh, you know, give effect to the acts of Congress uh, that were passed by a previous Congress that might not have the same uh, party persuasion as the current Congress. And I, I could see it also um, ap- appealing to someone like uh, Justice Ro- Chief Justice Roberts, where they don't want this sort of back and forth tug over the meaning of congressional acts just because the you know the the color of the the party you know changes from red to blue or vice versa. 
getting some sort of more finality uh, or just a settled approach uh, to these sorts of governmental obligations, I could see appealing to several uh, justices on, on the, the, you know, the further right end of the spectrum of the court. And then on the left side of the spectrum, I think you have um, justices who are just sort of uh, inclined to support the goals of the ACA, um, but also they could support it in a way where it, it actually it, it works for both uh, them and then uh, some more, let's say, let's call them textualist uh, justices. So, I, I, you know, if I'm a betting man, <laughs> I, I think that there are good arguments for um, either a, a single opinion um, where everyone gets along or concurring opinions where different justices from different stripes are able to get to the same result for perhaps slightly different reasons. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll find out uh, down the road later this term, but for, we'll leave it there for now. At Adam Wilson from Quinn Emanuel, uh, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much. Before hearing from our next guest, just one reminder that there are many other CLE offerings in addition to the podcast ones that our paper provides, either online at our site or in our daily paper. You can generally find CLE tests pertaining either to this podcast or attorney-written columns. Some are for participatory credit, others for general credit, but they are all good options for helping you to keep up to date with your state bar obligations. Blaine Evanson is a partner with Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher in Orange County part of the firm's appellate and constitutional law and class action practices, he's here to help unpack two of a handful of ERISA appeals at the Supreme Court this term. In one, U.S. Bank is arguing that significant losses its pension plan suffered allegedly due in part to self-dealing should not give its employees a cause of action because those employees didn't suffer any immediate financial harm. And because the lost funds were recouped from other sources, such that the eventual retirement payments were not in any jeopardy, the Eighth Circuit held in favor of the company. But the Solicitor General has suggested such a fact pattern could give rise to an ERISA suit because the company's bad investments created a materially increased risk of monetary harm. The other case, Intel v. Sulema, presents a statute of limitations question and asks essentially whether a plaintiff who received disclosures from his employer about the company's 401k investments should have been aware, based on those disclosures, of whether he had an ERISA claim to bring. Plaintiff brought his suit more than three years after those disclosures were made to him, and ERISA has a three-year time bar, so the company says should have triggered that time bar and blocked the plaintiff's suit. The Ninth Circuit disagreed, and the High Court will weigh in. Arguments in those cases are slated for December. Right now, though, we'll welcome in Blaine Evanson, Gibson Tunn, and Crutcher Partner in Orange County. Blaine, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, so we're, we're laying out two uh, cases here at the High Court dealing with uh, ERISA. It's one of those laws you've sort of heard about, but doesn't tend to take center stage at the Supreme Court all too often. But this term, we got got a few um, cases. We're going to talk about two. I think there are at least one or two others also being regarded by the court. So just maybe uh, at the outset, we could touch on what this act is and potentially what to make of the court uh, diving into a few ERISA matters. So in terms of a bit of background on ERISA, what... Uh, Exactly, is sort of design, and what are some of the provisions in it that are uh, that are salient and important? Yeah, I am am not an ERISA expert, but I but I you know, but these cases don't get too deep into the um, intricacies. Um, at a high level, ERISA is all about uh, imposing uh, standards, responsibility, and obligations on fiduciaries of benefit plans. So it provides remedies and sanctions and disclosure obligations, and importantly, for purposes of these cases, access to federal courts 
uh, to challenge some violations of the duties that ERISA imposes. And there are really two duties uh, that are principally at issue, the, the duty of loyalty, that fiduciaries must act solely in the interest of the participants and the beneficiaries, and the duty of prudence, that fiduciaries must act with the care, skill, prudence, and, and, uh, and diligence of a prudent uh, fiduciary and a manager under the circumstances. That's sort of the, the general thrust of, of and, and purpose of ERISA, and, and the issues that arise generally fall into one of those two duties. Do you have any thoughts as to why the court might be deciding to hear a, a few of these cases this term? Is it just sort of the way the cases came up the pipeline, or do you think there are um, sort of ways in which ERISA litigation has, has gone that the court has seen some need to correct? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, you know, I don't know that the court sees ERISA as um, a, you know, major flashpoint in the litigation in the, in the federal courts. Most of the cases that we'll talk about, there was a circuit split, a pretty defined circuit split. And, um, you know, as you know, that's an area where the court tends to grant certiorari and take cases. And so, and I think oftentimes also, once the court takes a case in a certain area, whether it's ERISA or Copyright Act or anything else, once the court takes a case in that area, they oftentimes take a couple more. And so it's not surprising to me that there's a you know, a, a batch of ERISA cases. And like I said, they both arise in, in uh, out of uh, circuit splits. But these, you know, these cases, although they're not as as sexy as some of the other cases that the court takes, they're really important. Um, you know, we're talking about people's retirement savings from the one perspective, and we're also talking about an area where there's often very costly and um, sometimes abused litigation from the other perspective. So, so these are important cases um, and the court's been very good about resolving splits and ensuring uh, uniformity in this area. We'll go ahead and dive into the first case that we're going to uh, speak about, Thole versus U.S. Bank. Um, so the the central question here is sort of whether or not a, uh, a participant in, in, a, in a plan, someone that um, in the future will receive payouts from, from a pension plan, um, whether that person can, can sue over some losses that were experienced by the plan, the, the the fund that's managed by here U.S. Bank, if you know at the moment no actual harm is is suffered by that uh, individual that's that's suing. So uh, as I understand it, there's a fund being managed by U.S. Bank that loses quite a bit of money. I think it was around the time of the financial crash. I think uh, three quarters of a billion dollars are lost, and and so the uh, the plan sort of falls below the statutory. Uh, minimums and that's bad. The, so the, the plaintiffs here sue, saying there's some harm, but of course they're they're not due to receive payouts from the plan until the future. Uh, U.S. Bank sort of recovers the equity in the plan, and so there's not really a, a big threat that the future payments are are threatened. Is that roughly the underlying fact pattern here? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think an important fact is that. The plans at issue are defined benefit plans, which means that the plaintiffs are are getting a regular fixed sum payout, and they get that fixed sum regardless of the return that the investments in the plan receive. So it's not that the amount of the investments went down, and so either the, the plaintiffs lost money or their returns were decreased. It's they're continuing to get their their payouts every on their regular intervals, 
but the allegation is that the overall corpus of the plan uh, suffered a loss because of the the way in which the plan uh, was managed. Okay, and this case came up through the Eighth Circuit, um, which held against the plaintiffs, as I understand it, sort of along the lines of there being no real present injury here in terms of, I guess, lost payout, uh, meaning that the, the plaintiffs didn't really have uh, standing to sue. Is that roughly what we're talking about in terms of the Eighth Circuit holding? That's right. Uh, one interesting wrinkle is that, you know, when we talk about standing, uh, we talk about Article Three and the court's constitutional jurisdiction to to hear a case. There's also, you know, statutory standing that's sometimes discussed. And the Eighth Circuit, in this case, avoided ruling on the constitutional Article Three standing ground by ruling on the statutory ground. And so it avoided the constitutional problem by interpreting the statute in a certain way. And we generally, you know, are familiar with the canon of constitutional avoidance, but it was a little screwy in this case because jurisdiction is always supposed to be considered first. And so uh, constitutional jurisdiction in particular. So it was a little screwy the way the Ninth Circuit avoided the Article Three question by ruling on the statutory question. And you see in the Supreme Court that the justices added a third question presented to address Article Three standing. And then the Solicitor General's brief, they lead with that question, recognizing that the Article Three jurisdictional question is the first question for the court to decide. And so the Eighth Circuit's decision is sort of suspect on that ground alone. And I, sus- and I suspect that in the Supreme Court, the focus is going to be on Article Three standing rather than on the statutory standing. You know, we can sort of center our conversation largely with that that in, in mind. And it seems like the arguments brought uh, to the court by the opposing parties sort of sound in Article Three type language in terms of, you know, what injuries are felt and when they're felt. And so one, obviously, is a conflict or a disagreement over whether there's an injury now. Um, so the plaintiffs will argue, it seems like, one, that, that – there is, even if, um, say, in the future, all their pension payments are paid out in full, the fact that the 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 plan that they're a part of loses a significant amount of money, that is an injury in itself. Is that part of the argument? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because this is a defined benefit plan and because the plaintiffs have, getting, have received all of their payments, they are primarily focused on arguing that their injury – it flows from an injury to the trust, you know, to the the corpus of investments that uh, that suffered the loss, and and they argue that the fact that the amount of money in the trust went down is a sufficient injury for standing, without respect to whether they ever suffer any decrease in the payments that they receive out of the plan, and that is their lead argument. So I guess uh, along with that. And I'm not sure if it's sort of um, dovetailed with that argument or a separate argument. Also, seems to be the the idea of, of breached duties. Um, so here, you know, you mentioned the duty of prudence. I suppose in investing in a way that that loses almost a, a billion dollars uh, would seem to be somewhat imprudent. Of course, we have the confounding factor of the financial crisis at the time. But um, there's also, I think, some hint that the U.S. bank plan had some investments that seemed to be like self-dealing, which would implicate maybe the duty of, of loyalty. So as I understand it, 
that there's that, that other argument is you can have some breaches of duty without necessarily having harm and, and there's some injury just with, with those breaches. Is that another argument? Yeah, I think that's right. One of the theories that the plaintiffs is, are asserting is is sort of derivative of the trust that as a beneficiary, they can assert an injury to the trust itself in sort of a representative or a derivative capacity. The other theory is that, and the one I think you were, you were getting at, is that they can assert uh, or they are injured because they, the beneficiaries, have a legal right in the trust. And so a breach of a duty to the trust is a claim that a beneficiary of the trust can assert because of their legal interest in the trust. You know, you see in the briefing a lot of reliance on the tr- common trust law because that's where a lot of these, a lot of uh, ERISA duties, you know, arguably originate. And so a lot of the arguments are based on those sorts of legal common law duties and common law rights in the trust that the beneficiaries hold. One post question that sort of arises from the way that the case is framed by the plaintiffs is that it would, it would seem to make one wonder, I guess, at, at what point the ability to sue gets triggered. So obviously there's a there's quite a bit of loss here to the corpus of, of the, the plan. But I, I guess I wonder what might be the limiting principle to an argument that says if, if there is a loss, then there's sort of a, a current harm to the future beneficiaries. And so they could sue. Do you have any sense from reading the briefs as to whether that concern is in there that if the court were to say, sure, this is a fine case to go ahead with, even though there's no immediate harm, that there could be just a flood of suits whenever, I guess, a, a smaller amount gets gets lost by a fund? Yeah, I, I think that is sort of the central challenge here because, you know, I, I'm not an investor um, at all. But, you know, fr- from what I – well, besides my own <laughs> personal investments, but I think most people understand that – for long-term investing, you absolutely understand that there are going to be times when you suffer losses, but you put together the mix of you know bonds and stocks and equities and everything else, knowing that over the long term or expecting that over the long term, the gains will outweigh the losses and you just have to weather some of those losses. And so it's hard to say that a pers- a long-term investor is harmed when the when there's a downturn knowing that what the goal that that's part of the understood uh, flow of the uh, of the investments particularly when you're talking about a defined benefit plan and the beneficiaries are receiving one-off payments that have no that are not um, governed by or affected by the the return on the investments and so I, as a person, am not injured just because the corpus goes down. I'm still getting my one-off payments, and everyone knows that the that the corpus is going to go down and up and down and up, um, and over the long term have a uh, a net um, a positive return. So it definitely gives rise to potential abuse if every time there's a downturn, we have lawsuits being filed uh, because those downturns are part of the plan, and the beneficiaries are not harmed by a downturn. Uh, as long as the overall long-term plan protects their future stream of of, um, of benefits. Now, the 
the U.S. government weighed in here with with an amicus brief, and the courts, you know, generally pays a good bit of attention to the views of the, the U.S. government. So, uh, what exactly did um, the Solicitor General's brief have to say here? That it it comes down on the side of the the plaintiffs for the most part, correct? That's right, and you know, it's that's um, notable given that the Solicitor General has in in the Trump administration been more employer and defendant friendly than than uh, the Solicitor General's office was in the past. So it's, it's definitely notable that, um, that he sides with the plaintiffs. And, and he agrees with this framework of, of the plaintiff's injury being drawn from trust law and an injury to the corpus being an actionable injury to the beneficiary. But he also adds this, this argument, recognizing, I think, that the court has struggled with whether a violation of a you know of a statutory duty is alone sufficient to confer Article Three standing. Uh, the Solicitor General recognizes that, and so there is an additional ground for standing in the Solicitor General's brief that even if there's no injury at present, at present, if there's a downturn in the corpus that um, that creates a materially increased risk of personal economic harm to the beneficiaries, then that is sufficient for standing. And so if there if the even though I have a right to regular benefits from the plan that are not contingent on the size of the corpus or the or the return that the investments in the corpus are are receiving, if there's a dip in the amount of the fund, I have an increased risk that I'm not going to get my defined benefit uh, payments at some point, and that increased risk is sufficient for article three standing. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a somewhat creative way of trying to make it see more immediate the the potential harm that that right now um what's happening is there's uh, maybe a higher chance that you will be harmed but it still sort of seems like it's predictive of, of future harm it's just okay now the possibility is higher so i guess i'm curious to see how that one will, will, will play out um at, at the court yes i agree um and then in terms of what the arguments for u.s bank are we sort of discussed both both sides of the the issue here but it, i guess it sounds like um they're making the argument that again this harm is is um is not imminent is it uh, theoretically won't happen uh, and that these breaches of duty are sort of abstract and not really felt what are what are the main um arguments brought by us bank yeah i think um the way you said it is right um you know, one way to summarize their argument, and I, I guess I should say that all we have from the bank is their brief in opposition to certiorari. They have not filed their brief on the merits with the court. So, um, you know, we I think we have a sense of what they'll argue, but not not their actual arguments to the court. But the way that I view their position is that if there's mismanagement and losses resulted by the uh, by the plan, then those losses have been remedied when the plan uh, refunds the money. Because what happened here and what often happens in these cases is that if the if the value of the fund dips too low, then ERISA requires the plan to over or to refund that money so that it it, it uh, uh, exceeds to the required level of funding. And so if there's a loss and the company managing the fund refunds that money so that there's enough to pay out the beneficiaries, then the harm is remedied and the claim is moot. I think that's essentially their argument. So if I give you 
$10 to hold for me, you lose that $10, but then you go and take $10 out of your pocket and say, okay, now I'm, I got $10. Now I'm holding this one for you, even though I lost your $10. My, I don't have a claim. My, my problem has already been solved and my claim is moot. So I think that's essentially the bank's problem and the, or argument. And there's a lot of intuitive sense to it, but you know, the fact that the uh, Solicitor General didn't buy it, I think, uh, and that, you know, they're the petitioner makes me think that the court may not either. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of be my, my last, uh, sort of concluding question about, about this one. And, and, and in some ways it does seem like that argument makes a good bit of sense that there's really, if the suit didn't happen, if things continue to play out the way they were headed, it seems like all the plaintiffs would, you know, be just the same as they would have been otherwise. So you can see the court, I don't know, sensing that equity, but um, as you said, the Solicitor General comes down on the other side. And so you think that the, the court might be likely to incline that way as well? Yeah, I think the safe bet is is always to go to the Solicitor General, Solicitor General and, and especially this Solicitor General. He has a really remarkable record with um, with the justices uh, far more than and then past administration. So I that's certainly the safe bet, even though I, I definitely see the bank's arguments. Then let's move on to the next case. We'll speak about Intel versus Sulima. Um, this comes out of our uh, our neighborhood, the the Ninth Circuit. Um, it deals with a statute of limitations question, and also a, again a, an ERISA action. So the the plaintiff here essentially uh, brings suit based on some alleged mismanagement of again a a, a fund and. The, the defense is a statute of limitations defense. Uh, Intel claims that this suit was brought three years after sort of the complained over, I guess, an investment strategy. In response, the, the plaintiff suggests that um, that statute of limitations shouldn't have started running because he wasn't aware of the, the uh, actions that caused the harm. But what um, I guess Intel says is it give, gave him disclosures and I think in sort of like periodic updates to the fund, what was going on. And so that should have been enough to make the plaintiff sort of know that uh, the harm had, had happened that he's suing over. But um, the Ninth Circuit holds otherwise. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And and in this case, it's important to note that we're talking about a defined contribution plan, a 401k, which is different from the plan in the other case, because here the plan is, 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 uh, is defining what is contributed, and then the beneficiary is subject to the you know market returns and does not get the fixed sum out of the plan the way that uh, was true in the last case. Um, just to spin that out slightly further, so the critical difference there is what is important about that distinction? It's important because whereas the beneficiary in a defined benefit plan may not care uh, what investments um, the plan is investing in because they don't uh, are, are not affected by the return of those investments. In a defined contribution and plan, the beneficiary cares very much about the mix of investments in the plan because if that if the if the corpus in the plan makes a five percent return, then then the beneficiary gets five percent return minus any fees. But if the if the uh, if the plan loses 3%, then the beneficiary loses 3% because the, it's only the contributions that are, that are defined. What you 
receive from the plan is subject to the uh, you know, market risk of the investments in the in the plan. Got it. That makes sense. So, okay, I'm, the arguments here on behalf of Intel seem straightforward enough. So, the you know, the plaintiff is an employee; they are participating in in the plan, and they're saying, "Look, we told you in these emails or documents that we would send you along the way that this is how the the four hundred one k plan was being invested." And so, you know, that gives to you the knowledge you would need if you need to file a suit over mismanagement. Um, that seems to be the main thrust of their case, right? Yeah, that, that's right. ERISA has a has two statutes of limitations. One, uh, a six-year statute, uh, or a six-year statute of repose, rather, and then a three-year statute of limitations that runs after the earliest date on which the plaintiff had actual knowledge of the breach or violation. And Intel's argument is that we disclosed to you all everything that was uh, was in the plan. We made all the disclosures required by ERISA, and those were emailed so we could ensure actual receipt. The plaintiff logged onto the website several times and visited something like a thousand pages on the site. And in his deposition, though, he still said when asked whether he viewed and remembered the disclosures that he's not sure whether he saw the disclosures and couldn't remember. So that's and the, the district court or the Ninth Circuit held that that was a fact question that precluded summary judgment. Okay, so I guess we're sort of fighting over what actual knowledge means. And, of course, it's a term of art, so it doesn't maybe mean that a person actually knew. Um, It it might be a broader concept than whether or not the the plaintiff here did, in fact, um, sort of cognate or have cognition of of the knowledge necessary. But Intel would suggest that, you know, actual knowledge is broad enough to include some instances like this one where they're saying, look, you're kind of willfully blind to this knowledge that you could have had. And so, you know, that we should just count that as as though you actually knew the information that, you know, uh, would trigger the statute of limitations. Is that uh, one argument? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I think ERISA or Intel's argument is that ERISA is really two-sided. It requires these disclosures so that participants can make um, informed decisions, but it also holds the participants accountable for that information. So, it provides certainty and predictability for the plan. And if the plan discloses all of the information, certainly if that information is received and accessed by the uh, by the plan participant, then that person has knowledge of of the facts and is held to the three year uh, statute of limitations. That's the argument. Yeah, I mean, and one sort of uh, related piece of it seems to be that Intel is saying, look, if you know we take the Ninth Circuit's reading and, and sort of accept that the plaintiff says, well, I didn't actually read this stuff, so I didn't really know it, then maybe this statute of limitations would essentially never get triggered because any plaintiff could always say that. And if you can't sort of assume that the plaintiff read this information that was given to him or her, then you know what else could you do to sort of prove knowledge, which there seems some logic to that argument as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you think of, you know, this plaintiff in particular, that he was emailed. Like, it's not like the um, the plan just put this stuff in the mail and we're going to assume that it was received and the letter was opened and, you know, it was viewed and the like. This was, because it was, it was disclosed digitally, we know that it was emailed. We know that the email was opened. We know that the website was accessed, that he logged in, that he viewed over a thousand pages. So we know he looked at all this stuff. 
but it's impossible for a defendant to prove that he actually read the lines that were presented to him or that those words in the disclosure registered in his brain and were stored there. Like if, if knowledge, if actual knowledge means that, it's going to be impossible to prove and the three-year statute of limitations is going to be kind of a nullity, I think is, is the argument. Yeah. Okay, then let's dive into, I guess, the argument supporting the, the underlying plaintiff here. There seems to be one just sort of fact-based one as to whether or not the all the relevant information was included in the disclosures. Is that the case? I think that the argument, the plaintiff's argument here is that sure, the mix of investments was disclosed, but the statute of limitations is triggered by knowledge of the breach or violation. And the breach or violation requires more than just the mix of investments. Um, you need to know whether the investments were were prudent or not. And I think that the argument is that the plan was investing in a way that was sort of unlike the investments of its of, of peer plans. And you don't know from the disclosure, you don't know that from the disclosures. It would have to be, you know, disclosure of this plan and a comparison against other plans or something in order to really tell that the investments were not prudent. And so I think that's what they're saying was not disclosed. Not that Intel violated the ERISA disclosure rules or something, but that in addition to the required disclosures, there was more information that would need to be disclosed in order for there to be knowledge of the breach or violation as the statute of limitations requires. Part of that too seems to also relate to, I think, sort of a co-argument here that the the plaintiff isn't a particularly sophisticated investor. And so maybe Intel should have um, built that in to the disclosures when it was thinking about, I guess, all the relevant information that might need to be provided. Um, you know, to some extent, though, it seems like the burden would be on the plaintiff if you want to bring suit over fund mismanagement to kind of, I don't know, you know, brush up on, I guess, the, the ins and outs of investment to know what you're talking about. So I don't know what you think about that argument. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, plaintiff is, the plaintiff is not a dummy. I mean, he's, he's a doctorate in experimental physics. Um, I think you know, he was not a sophisticated investor, but, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to make the statute of limitations trigger on whether someone is capable of, you know, understanding all of the finance involved in order to determine that this was not a prudent investment decision, because that's just going to be a very small percentage of plan participants. So it's, you know, it, it makes it tricky, like, and is the standard that, the disclosure has to be that this was imprudent or is the standard that the disclosure has to be of all the information necessary to determine whether the decision was imprudent or not? I mean, that's, that's to me one of the fundamental questions. Yeah, it seems sort of unlikely that the court would require, say, Intel to put out a disclosure saying, hey, everyone, these are bad investments that we're doing. <laughs> but, we're really pushing the envelope yeah. here. Uh, well, then maybe just the one last argument is, and this one seems a little bit more logical to me, at least that, okay, actual knowledge and say constructive knowledge, they are different concepts. And what Intel is 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 saying is actual knowledge here does, you know, sound a little bit like what you might refer to as constructive knowledge in other contexts, like here are all the ingredients that make it seem like this person would know this stuff. We send on the disclosure, he read it. And so that equals knowledge. But I mean, th- those are different concepts, right? Constructive and actual knowledge. Yes, and I, I think that this is this is what I think the court will ultimately 
where, where the rubber really hits the road because they have to draw this line between actual knowledge and constructive knowledge because the term actual knowledge in the statute has to have some meaning. So this has to be actual knowledge in some sense. But I think the question is actual knowledge of what? Is it actual knowledge of the mix of investments? Because they had actual knowledge of that. And it would be constructive knowledge of that if, for example, the argument was, look, we disclosed this stuff to the SEC. It's available on the SEC website. It's available publicly. It was you know, advertised in the news or something. So we're going to say that plaintiff had constructive knowledge of all of that because it was disclosed. That's very different from saying we gave you the information, we ensured it was received, we know that you viewed it. Um, that to me starts to sound like a lot, a lot more like actual knowledge than constructive knowledge, given that it was. It, we know that it was viewed by the plaintiff, and and I don't think that. Well, I I don't know that actual knowledge requires that the words were actually read and it was internalized in his brain. I don't think that that standard is required in order to give some meaning to the actual qualifier on knowledge. I guess just last one, you know, this is a Ninth Circuit case, which certainly not be the first time that the Supreme Court took a Ninth Circuit ruling and, and, and reversed. Uh, do you think that that might be the direction they're, they're heading here to, to side against the plaintiffs? Yeah, it's tough. I don't know. Um, I, you know, generally think that the petitioner, the, the petitioner definitely has the wind as back given the court, um, reverses in the clear majority of cases. And and here, I just, the, the position that a participant who is sent, receives, accesses, and even reviews the disclosure, but can't remember whether he read the particular disclosure, doesn't have actual knowledge, that just seems like a pretty extreme position to me. So I, I would bet on reversal, but, you know, it's it's a tough one, I think. Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, all these ones are always a pretty close calls. That's why they get up there. But we'll look uh, very much forward to to keeping our eyes on these two and, and leave it there for now. Uh, Blaine Evanson from Gibson Dunn and Crutcher in Orange County. Thanks a bunch for uh, being on our podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Again, that's our podcast for October 8th, 2019. Number two of our four-part SCOTUS OT 2019 preview series. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Adam Wolfson and Blaine Evanson. And so to my production staff here, principally Heinrich Nielsen. And thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget, one hour of participatory CLE credit is available for you having tuned into this podcast. Just go to our, our website, dailyjournal.com, to find it. Look forward to speaking to you on Thursday for part three of our series. Have a good day.